Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. And here we are at episode number 89, number 89 of uh, the ones we've done. And in fact, you know, things have actually changed quite a bit since we did our first ones back in May uh, 2019. You know, the ammunition situation has changed drastically. The political situation has changed drastically. And gun availability, for the most part, has changed drastically. Although, you know, you go into any kind of a larger gun shop, and even some of the smaller ones, and you still see inventory. It may not be exactly what you want, but you will see some inventory. But uh, anyway, I got a couple of I gotchas here, or I told you so. I, I said they were going to go after these uh, 80% lowers, and, and they're not even waiting for Biden to get in. Apparently there was at least a visit, I don't know if I want to call it a raid, but there was at least a, vi- a visit to this company, Polymer 80. It's kind of been all over the gun- news in the gun circles, not out in the general media. But what these guys make is they make an, a kit that had an upper, all the parts, bolt parts, the complete upper, a complete lower interior parts kit, you know, with all the fire control parts and everything. And then they have an 80% lower with this thing. And the the idea is you finish the 80% lower and you plug the rest of the pieces in and you have a functional firearm, a so-called ghost gun. You know, and, and frankly, I don't know why these things are really attracting that much attention. Uh, one, one opinion I heard was, well, organized crime. You know, organized crime, the guys, you know, I guess the... You know, <laughs> the black shirt, the white tie, eating a plate of spaghetti and and uh, basically talking about all the stuff they're doing, you know, the <laughs> look at, in the Italian restaurant. You know, organized crime is, is oh, and they have to have a pearl tie tack too, I guess. But uh, anyway, these guys are, are making ghost guns and they're being used in crime. Well, if that were true, it would be all over the conventional news and it's not. So why is the ATF really interested? I think they've gotten complaints. There's there's two fundamental complaints against these things. Number one is people saw what happened in St. Louis with the St. Louis couple, and they want an AR-15 style weapon. And they not they're not too too revved on having a lot of people know they have it. So this is a way you can obtain one, finish it yourself, completely legally under the law, and you have it. Okay. Now, if you're in a state like Kansas, that's not a big deal. It's just not a big deal. If you're in California, it's a big deal because that kind of a rifle is not allowed in California. So I think they're getting the restricted states are probably making a complaint that, hey, uh, basically this is de facto availability of a prohibited item. So that's the first thing I think they're, they're going after. The next one is I think they... In the ATF's heart of hearts, they would like to ban anyone who does not have a manufacturing license from making a firearm, even though that's been a tradition going back to before the Revolutionary War. People could make their own firearms if you had the the skill to do it. I think they would like to see that go away, um, just as a just as a matter of of opinion and a stance and a political belief system that they represent. That's why I think they're going after them. So, you know, you heard it here. They were going to go after these things, and they're going to go after them. And there's no legal standard for what is 80%. Do you have to drill two holes? Do you have to mill something out? I, you know, there is there is no objective standard. We just, 80% is a label we put on something unfinished. And legally, to be a 80% or unfinished receiver, an unfinished receiver is nothing more than a, a chunk of metal legally. But in order to finish it, you have to do some operations. And for it to, and it, and it cannot accept the fire control parts in its unregulated 80% finished form. You know, you can't put the trigger in and all that. So you at least have to drill some holes for the trigger pins and all that. It cannot be a functional firearm if it's in the 80% state. So that's what uh, Polymer 80 is. You know, they're under the heat. And, you know, of course they say, well, they even, and, and then the ATF went and to someone's home and, and uh, seized a kit. Well, unless that person was a prohibited person, 
as in a felon or something else, which I don't believe it was, it's probably a shill, probably somebody who bought the kit from the ATF and said, this is how you buy it, this is how this thing all works, and as far as I know, that person then could have said, hey, I don't want this thing, come and get it, and they, and they kind of use that as a as a, uh, a little event, you know, that they've done that, just to instill fear into people who have these things. Um, that's all that is. Same deal now with braces. Apparently, they put out some confusing letter, and there's there's some videos on YouTube. Frankly, I don't. I'm not going to get into the minutia of of all that, but you know, they're looking at braces. They're looking at what they consider to be large frame pistols, which are you know what we would kind of look at as, as something that's a rifle action that's been manufactured in a pistol form, so it can be you know legal as a pistol. <clears throat> Because it is illegal unless you SBR something to cut down a rifle into a pistol, and, and you know, and that's confusing with all the SBR laws. And and you have to go way back. Why is there even an SBR law? Well, it is because. Let me see if I can go through this right. I, an SBR is a workaround for a handgun. If you don't have a handgun, you cut down a rifle and it makes it more concealable. Therefore, it's like a handgun. And that's why it's illegal to to, to do that. And um, people are looking at it and saying, hey, uh, this is this is what's happening. They are beating the the system and the system is is set not to have that but if you can leave, if you can own a handgun why can't you own the workaround for a handgun i mean a, a handgun is much smaller more concealable than a than a uh, sbr is so consequently um you know if you can own a handgun an sbr kind of becomes a moot point and you know in fact in england it's it's very funny when they kind of uh, made a lot of handguns illegal <laughs> then what they then what people did was and you saw some of these weird things come out and i was actually in europe um i was deployed to bosnia or someplace when they actually made the handguns illegal in britain and i at the time i don't know if it's still the case but at the time all centerfire handguns unless they were antiques were were basically illegal the 22 caliber handguns could be legal, but they had to be stored in the club, you know, kind of in an arms room in the club where you were doing your shooting. So when you want to shoot it, you go down to the club, you check it out, you shoot it, clean it, do whatever you need to do, and then you check it back in. You can't, cannot uh, take it home with you. Maybe a little different now because gun laws change over time. But one of the things they did with rifles was because there was no SBR law, was they would take something like an infield action and it would have a buttstock, and they would put a 10-inch barrel on it, and they would modify it so that it would feed from a Browning High Power magazine, and the barrel would be a 9-millimeter barrel. And so, therefore, you had this bolt-action 9-millimeter carbine with a, like a 10, 7 or 10-inch barrel. It's very compact. So in England, it was actually encouraged to create those and to put a short barrel on a rifle if you wanted kind of a handgun workaround here it's if you put a short barrel on a rifle you're in violation of the law so it just shows you how uh, how strange gun laws can be sometimes yeah and and we mentioned braces they're they're going to come after braces on some level i think it's going to explode in their face because you can manufacture braces just like you can manufacture nfa parts and say hey all nfa rules apply sell them and there's so many out there, they're going to have to do some kind of grandfathering. It, it isn't like bump stocks where there's only a few. So, you know, braces are going to come under some sort of scrutiny or some sort of, of, of heat. But I don't think they're going to be successful with all that. Uh, you know, let's look at, uh, oh, and the last thing, kind of political. Hey, if you got a few extra dollars, if you get if Santa leaves you any kind of money, Go ahead and uh, donate it to the Georgia GOP Senate races. You know, it'd be nice if we can win those two seats. If we can win them, that's going to put the brakes on evil Joe bite me for a while. So uh, that's the that's the deal. Um, OK, Brownells has got some news. <laughs> Good and and some personal news for me. Bad. 
Uh, Brownells is going to stop making their 601 AR-15 clone and also their Proto AR-15 clone. So if you like those, the time to buy them is now, right now. And in fact, I would be ordering one today um, because after January 20th, it's probably going to be some sort of a hassle. So I would get one of get one of those today if you can. They're still going to make the uh, M16A1 clone they make and the XM16 clone they make and also the little uh, carbine the XM177. Uh they're going they're going to make those. But uh, the other ones are going to kind of go by the way of the dodo. So if you want one, buy it now. They will still have parts so you can build your own. And the the only advantage I see to that is if you want to go through that process, that's fine. Um, you can get a one in seven pencil profile barrel, which is probably a little more useful than the one in twelve. You know, to me, it doesn't matter. I don't really shoot the heavy stuff uh, that much. I shoot it in one one rifle, and that's that's about it. But uh, for the others, um, you know, it would make it a, a bit more versatile that you could use some of the heavy loaded, you know, heavy heavier bullet loads, I should say. So. Uh, you can still build one, but, you know, parts are, are going to be parts. But if you want the complete rifles, the time to buy it is now. Absolutely right now. Now, another uh, another issue. Did I see the, the 32 French long episode that um, Forgotten Weapons has done several of these? And they're really pretty good. They're really pretty good. Um... There was also a podcast where uh, Ian McCollum talked about the 32 French Long. You know, thanks to the generosity, the great generosity and intellectual curiosity of our friend of the podcast, I've actually gotten to fire a 35A and a 35S, the French pistols. And, and I tell you, they shoot quite nice, and they're quite accurate for service pistols. I mean, they're they're really very, very good and I like them very much. Um, I don't agree with the assessment that there's any real future for it, but I do. I do think the French were on to something. They they had they had an idea that a pistol could have light recoil, controllability, and some sort of reasonable power. So I I kind of like that. They were they were thinking outside the box, and they put it into very nice designs and uh it wasn't the browning high power that they kind of turned down which you know would leave most people scratching their heads because that's such an outstanding pistol but you know the two they had were certainly serviceable certainly good uh but i don't believe that there's any future um they were they were speculating that with you know, with it's that old red herring of with improved bullets and powder that somehow this cartridge's performance will somehow be start rivaling the nine millimeter. And you know, the the fact of the matter is that's that's an old argument. Um, most ammunition in really any auto pistol caliber, a lot of them, are full patch bullets because of reliable feeding. You know, those 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 relieved those relieve oh my god no those feed most reliably they feed most reliably and in fact if you go out and try to buy top end ammunition now it's it's hard to find you know with these high speed expanding hollow points and all that i mean you you buy a thousand rounds of ball ammunition and uh nine millimeter ball is going to cost you 600 bucks maybe even more so I, I don't think there's a future for the 32 French Long, but I think it is definitely interesting. And if you like oddball cartridges, which I do, I like the unusual, uh, it's definitely something very, very cool. That brings me back to uh, hand loading. You know, we just talked about the price of 9mm. Well, you know, it's it's uh, one of those things. I, I do practice what I preach, and on my single-stage press, I've had uh, I've loaded about 400 rounds of nine millimeter just to pass day and a half i had the cases ready primed the case mouth expanded the whole thing and um, the fact of the matter is the fact of the matter is it uh, worked out quite well 
um, I had them ready to go. I just did a powder charge, seat the bullet, and then I, I basically put us in a separate operation, put a small crimp on the uh, on the bullet just to get rid of the bell. And I turn out, you know, 125 grain lead bullet loads, which, you know, frankly, they're they're as good as any of the cheap stuff that I was buying before. So, so I do practice what I preach, and I kind of encourage everybody that, you know, when primers become available again. It's wise to just don't don't try to stock up and buy ten thousand the first day. Don't don't create a run, but just like every two months or so, buy a thousand primers over a year. You'll have a great stash. And when, not if, but when this kind of an ammo or component shortage happens again, you'll be very well postured if you've invested in the simple equipment and all those things I talked about in previous podcasts. So. Just let that let that go. Oh, I forgot the uh, the bad news from Brownells was on their website had nine millimeter Largo brass. And as I said the last um, the last podcast, I have a nine millimeter Largo Star pistol. Well, I thought, oh, this is great. What a great opportunity to get some brass, and you know, I can load up my lead bullets in this and and be good to go. Well, so I order it, and of course the box comes, and I open it up, and there was some. 3840 brass which i ordered also and then i look down and it's like i look at the label and it's marked starline nine millimeter largo for sure but i look and, and of course part of the black the bag is clear plastic so i look through that and i go wow um you know this is not this is not what I was thinking it was. These, these are bottleneck cases. What's going on here? And well, I, I, I switched it. I, I moved them around there and I saw it was 762 by 25, 763 by 25, or 762 by 25. It's very much, very similar to 7.63 Mauser, except it has a little bit shorter neck. So I called Brownells and I said, hey, look, you're selling, what you're selling is 9mm Largo Brass is not, and they offered to return it. They offered to pay the shipping and all that. And I I basically kept it because I might use it for another project. So the money was already spent, and why go why go through the hassle? So, um, and we're not talking a lot, of, a lot of big dollars, but they actually went and checked their their, their remaining supply of 9mm Largo, which was sold out, and they said, well, we don't have any more of that. And I go, well, you'll probably be getting a few more phone calls. But they were very nice to deal with. It probably was a labeling problem from Starline and not, not Brownell's uh, incompetence or malfeasance. Okay, I don't really do gear reviews, but this time I'm going to make an exception. There is a piece of junk out there, and it's sold through some military surplus outlets. You can even, I think, order it through Amazon. Get You can reach these guys through Amazon. And this is the uh, Smirsh SSO Russian Special Operations Tactical Vest, I guess is what it's called. Well, I, I wanted one for another purpose, not because I wanted to... to I needed it for any kind of real requirement. I just, I bought it for another reason. And of course, when I got, I, I was absolutely shocked. I mean, this thing sells, with shipping, it's like 150 bucks. And um, what you get is a Leapers UTG paintballer quality set of equipment. Uh, you know, and we can go through the whole thing. It's it's single stitched in most places, which tells you it's not going to last. It's not made for serious operators of any type. It's an old, basically, it's an old U.S. H harness design, and it it hooks down into this patch, or not patch, but these these terrible pouch arrays, and they sell it for different. They sell they have an AK, they have an AK version an SVD version and an RPK version. The material is very thin and cheesy. It's not like it's going to last any any time. It's kind of complex to put together. It uses a lot of older strap and buckle technology and the the you know quick release buckles it has are really cheap. You know, this thing just reeks of paintball quality. Um essentially and it's kind of set up, the AK-1 is basically AK-74. AK magazines will will fit, 
but you can tell it's not really made for them. But AK-74, that's that's fair enough. So you, you look at that, and then you see the, how bad the design is. Obviously, there's no provision for any type of body armor. There's no provision to carry a sidearm. There's no provision to carry any water. You know, it just it just doesn't have those. So what good is it? And the answer is it's not very good at all. Um, no special operations person would use this. They just wouldn't. It just it's not flexible enough. It's not adjustable. You would think coming from Russia, it would be a quickly adjustable, so you could put it over clothing over heavier clothing. Because as we know, it's not exactly balmy in Russia, especially during the the fall and the winter. So. You know, you would think adjustability would be a big thing. This is very difficult to adjust. It's <clears throat> very, very complex to put together. It's 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 a piece of garbage. No no field army would issue this thing. Um, it, it comes with a little butt pack on back that's too small to be a day pack. It, it fits in the center of your back, so if you're doing any kind of crawling or anything, it's going to snag on everything. It, this is just a terrible... At the the quality is poor, the design is poor, and no experienced infantry soldier would be caught dead in this thing. If you issued that to somebody, they would hate it. It's not going to last. It's not designed well. And if you know if you know anything about the Russian language, and I only know a little bit, shmersh, you know, which sounds cool, smersh, you know. That's actually two Russian words that are, that are um, it's kind of an acronym of two Russian words, which means death to spies, death to spies. And it came from the James Bond uh, fiction universe. So there's no real smirsh. This is all, this is all garbage. And it's, I actually wrote a scathing, but true, but very true but it is it did turn out to be scathing review for Amazon which they haven't published so all the reviews on Amazon are very very good but they will not publish the the ones that are critical so you should keep that in mind should keep that in mind when dealing with Amazon okay let's move to a couple of things there's a lot of stuff goes around on the internet and, and I kind of call it gun lore um, the Younger people call it, they try to insult everybody. They call it boomer lore. I kind of can, in, in response, I call it millennial misunderstanding. But there's gun lore out there that is just, you know, it's 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 been out there. And it, it slowly gets debunked. But, you know, one of the things are serial numbers on the internet and social media. Guys showing off his 45 auto that he got from the CMP or whatever it is and they cover the serial number. I don't see that as a big deal. You know, you don't want to share the serial number. Who who cares? It's your gun. It's your serial number. But all these guys, what do you mean? What are you doing covering that up? And, you know, the fact of the matter is, I don't think anybody has ever been in trouble for putting a serial number on the internet. You know, because they just, it's fleeting, you know, especially Facebook, you know. No one's ever going to go back six months and, and uh, you know, the, the old fear was, well, if they have that, they could report it stolen to the cops. And then, um, you know, your gun is reported as a stolen gun. I've never heard of that actually happening. I suppose it could. But, um, you know, if a person doesn't want to put their, their serial number on, so be it. And I don't think everybody else should be that worried about it. Um, but it does create a lot of problems when somebody covers it. It creates a lot of problems. So I think the serial number on the internet is gun lore that just kind of needs to go away. It's like, yeah, if it's there, fine. If it's not, no sweat. Okay, another one. The Browning High Power was Browning's last design. And the, the, the next statement is, and he corrected all the problems in the 1911. And one of those problems, one of those problems was the grip safety, which I said, well... That was mandated, and Browning knew that was a piece of junk, and he didn't put it on the Browning High Power, and blah, 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 you know. First of all, I think you have to credit the Browning High Power design to Dion de Saive, because Mr. Saive was the guy who really took it from a just a concept prototype into the finished 
model that we see. I mean, and they're, and they're quite different. The next thing to know is a lot of Browning's earlier designs had, guess what, grip safeties. I mean, it was not just something that was forced upon him. It was, at the time, the even the Luger had a grip safety in the early 1900s. The Luger had a grip safety. So did the... Uh, Oh, so did a lot of other little pistols that, that you can think of, and, and Browning's earlier designs had it. It was looked upon as something that was useful. Whether you like it today or not is, is another matter, but it was contemporary with the design time frame of the 1911, so it's not surprising it wound up there. And the fact that it's still on the gun doesn't really, I don't think most people even notice it. I don't even really pay any attention to it. So it is what it is, but the Browning High Power was not, if you showed, if, if John Browning had come back to life in 1945 and you showed him an Inglis High Power, he probably wouldn't recognize it, probably wouldn't know what it was. He'd probably say, who designed this? This is pretty good. Who designed it? And, and I think that would probably be the, uh, uh, that would probably be his assessment. He'd probably look at it and go, man, this got a lot of good ideas. And uh, so there's the, uh, there's the deal on the Browning High Power. I just don't think that it was really designed or really meant to be this uh, this thing that uh, that really was is completely 100% attributable to John Browning. Okay, another one. Hand loading is for geezers. Hey, guess what? A year ago, two years ago, that was all kind of the buzz. You know, oh, these dudes hand load. You know, this is going to be some old guy in a ball cap, and he's gonna he's gonna tell me how great the 1911 is how it's better than a Glock, and then he's going to ask me if I want, if he can pick up my brass, and, you know, everybody kind of was, you know, that was kind of the stereotype that that everybody was kind of pushing around. It's not so funny now, because those guys who are hand-loading still have ammo, and I'm sure that there are a lot of people with, that are holding on to some expensive guns that uh, <laughs> that are dry right now, or they're, they're holding on to their last couple of hundred rounds like they're made out of gold or something you know that's that's more likely the case but no hand loading i i predict if i predict one thing from this covid riot all this other stuff that was going on this this last summer it said hand loading will see a renaissance there will be all of a sudden dylan sales are going to go up for their Dillon machines and even the simpler equipment, I th and I think that's where that the big money is going to be. Um, guys like Lee, maybe RCBS, uh, and a few others that, that make the very simple presses are going to find that people are buying a lot more of those just so they can single caliber turn out stuff in times of need. They can do what we said in the last podcast. They can stockpile. You know, a couple thousand primers, a couple thousand bullets, a pound of powder, and guess what? They're in business. So I think we'll see that happen. Okay, we can now move from gun lore to my favorite part of the podcast, which is questions and answers. So... This is a question related to something I talked about when I talked about fakers. You know, and there's, there's a couple different kinds of fakers. And, and just to give a quick recap, there are the people who take something and they fake an example of something extremely rare by using a very common example. And they hope to sell it for big money. Okay. And, the, and sometimes they're successful depending on the how shrewd the buyer is and how well educated the buyer is. But normally that's a tough, that's something tougher to pull off because frankly, um, you know, it's, it's, nobody shells out big money for something unless they, they pretty much have a great idea what they're buying. Not that, not that it doesn't happen and not that, uh, not that even some of the experts can't be fooled because they can, but they usually, usually have some way of verifying the information. So that's, that's the toughest nut to crack for a faker the next one is just taking common examples and enhancing them um, to make them into something more saleable 
an example of this would be to take a what's the lowest grade M1 they sell? I guess it's a rec grade. If you take a CMP rec grade M1 and you you basically you know redo it to the point where you can pass it off as a service grade gun or let's say you put national match parts on it you just completely do that and then uh, sell it as a national match gun well you know that is that is something that happens a lot more taking something that is in very poor condition and rehabbing it uh, to the point where it can pass for a better condition example and you know sometimes that's by replacing um, parts and, and and doing a few things so there there's some of that faking or stamping cartouches on some on <laughs> on stocks that do not have them whether they be period or new stocks sometimes they found that so uh, you know that's that's another aspect of faking and the third aspect of faking and the most pathetic are people who have stuff in their collections that they faked and they pass that off as well I have owned this exceptionally rare piece of whatever and uh, I, I tell you a great example of this I know a guy who in the 90s through an ad in shotgun news bought a what he thought was a Colt Bisley okay so what he got was an old single action made in you know the early 1900s he, he got and it had a Bisley barrel, Bisley grips, Bisley grip frame, Bisley hammer. But it was on a single action frame, so the Bisley grips didn't really match very well. It's not like the Ruger's, you know, the Ruger grip frame, no matter which, no matter, the, the Ruger frame will match any of their grip frames. Well, Colts did not. And so this guy has had for, God, it's going to be tw at least 25 years. He tells everybody he's got a Colt Bisley. Now, anybody who knows anything about guns looks at it, knows exactly what it is when you kind of look where the, the, the frame matches the grip frame. And, uh, you know, that's the, that's, that's fake, that's fakery because he's going to try to sell that as a bit. It was faked to him and he should have, I would have put a regular single action grip frame on it and called it good and said hey here's my single action parts gun because that's really what he's got and that way people know but there's there's people who put something like that in their collection and portray it as something that it is not and that's actually the most pathetic if you're interested in buying something and you even begin to suspect it's a fake the the best question you can ask the guy the seller is how do you tell this from a good fake <laughs> and I think you'll find that they do not want to go down that road they because they they can't really explain because they know what they did to fake theirs but they're not going to point it out to you so you can see that theirs is a fake so I would say that I would go down that road with them and say hey um, I don't know uh, what a good fake looks like can you tell me and if they kind of all of a sudden you know push it away don't talk about it don't want to kind of address it then you know that they may be concealing something so that's one way to spot a faker all right our next question what is a vopo luger okay um yeah i know a little bit about these vopo lugers are cool guns they are german lugers that were made during the Second World War and before, which have been repurposed and rebuilt, and in a lot of cases denazified by having the Waffen amps removed and everything, so that they could be used by the East German police when East Germany was kind of a, a nascent state, you know. Um, there were a lot of German weapons left over obviously the east german as they set up their border police and later their army and their police forces and everything uh, they had a lot of ex-german weapons and they could get them from the soviet union and uh, essentially they were familiar with them a lot of them had been in the war a lot of the people in those services had been in the war so consequently they, it was a natural fit and it didn't it didn't drain any uh resources from 
you know, the Soviet Union or the Warsaw Pact. So for several decades, they kind of used this stuff. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, they're out there. Uh, some were imported. They do not command what a collector Luger would be. Almost everyone I've seen is a parts gun. The, the frames and the barrels and all these things don't match. And in some cases, they have replacement parts and replacement barrels. Um, simply because that's they actually got these things. And in some cases, for their P-38s, because they actually are Vopoth P-38s, they actually bought some from the Walther Company in West Germany. <laughs> you know, there's some irony there. They're buying these. Um, and you could usually tell them, I think they're marked with an O or with a circle, you know. So it's really kind of funny that there are <laughs> West German parts on East German guns during a point where West Germany and East Germany were not on the best of terms. So there you, there you go. <laughs> Okay, tell us about your rifle match, Red Dawn, Kansas. Okay, um, the club I belong to allows me to put on a match. It's called Red Dawn, Kansas. It's done in January, and, uh, you know, the deal about it is it's fun. It's a time to, you can, some people do it, myself being one of them, but there are others also who dress up in kind of, you know, at least a little bit of a Warsaw Pact or Russian type costume you know the ushanka hats and 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 some of the you know that wool cold weather gear that the russians are famous for and we shoot predominantly it's really focused on warsaw packed weapons and you know they because they actually perform very well in the cold not surprisingly and uh, world war ii and and uh, you know russian and warsaw packed weapons so, you know, we, we have a lot of fun there. We actually even have a resistance class in case somebody wants to dress like a Wolverine out of the movie Red Dawn. So that's really, you know, in a nutshell what that is. It's a, uh, it's just a lot of fun. And we don't really, we're not about scores and, and all the rest of it. That's, we publish a thing, but it's just go out there and have fun. Use your weapon in the cold. It's, it's a whole nother deal when you're using your weapon out there in, uh, the very cold uh, weather so that's what red dawn kansas is okay next question and this question is what is it that well i guess descendants i guess that's what the word is it's not spelled very well is it the descendants do that can harm the collector value of a family heirloom and uh so we're talking about and and the I've got several examples that, that pop into my mind. Um, it's the it's the gun that Grandpa brought back from World War II, or it's some other uh, relic that's been handed down. This, you know, how many times and and you see this kind of often. Well, this is my grandfather's gun. Okay, well, where did he get it? Well, he might have gotten it from his father. I don't know. Um, one of the biggest things you can always do is document the history of whatever gun it is somebody knows maybe it's your parents who know maybe it's your grandparents you know somebody knows the the history of this heirloom and so you know document it as best you can just even if you just write it down on a piece of paper uh, or write it on an internet thing and send it around <clears throat> to any other interested family members so that you don't lose the story that's the most important thing you can do and that's what happens it's done uh, not done quite a bit. Um, I've seen, I've seen people, it's, it's, this was more common about 10 or 15 years ago, but, you know, widows, where did your husband get this? And it's some sort of World War II firearm. The one that leaps to my mind was a, a Beretta 1934. Where did your husband get this? Well, I don't know. I think he got it in the war. Well, as, as a war bring back, it's, with some sort of a story, it, it's going to be a lot more complete than just the gun sitting there at prima facie value. And of course, most people have lost the the permission 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 documents that they had when they brought these things back in. You know, there was always some army paperwork that got filled out. A lot of that got lost. So, not documenting the story is probably the biggest one. The next ones I've seen, and, and these are actually kind of heartbreaking. 
is modifying something. I ran into a guy, it was a while ago, it was probably 20 years ago. He had the pistol that his uncle had used on Iwo Jima. And unfortunately, as a very young man, <laughs> this guy had had target sights installed on it. So, uh, you know, World War II era Colt that it now has some 1960s uh, target sights on it. So its originality is gone. And although it's still an heirloom and it's still it's still very cool and it still has a cool story, it's not in its original condition. And, and back then, you know, people didn't really think 20, 30, 50 years into the future, what is this going to be worth and should I really modify it? So I would say that that's a, uh, that's a really big a really big thing another thing that happened two other things that happened was uh, and sometimes this was done by the people who brought them back themselves as a matter of fact it almost always was uh, chrome plating that that always happened nickel nickel plating or chrome plating a firearm that had been captured just to make it kind of look you know more snazzy and you see those occasionally p38s or, or Japanese pistols that have been that have been nickeled you know that's that was usually something the veterans did themselves because they wanted to embellish them um, and in some ways they become part of the firearm story and it's they're kind of neat collectibles but as a pristine example of what they were they they don't they aren't that way anymore so that was kind of a bad thing the other thing which was really egregious was in the 50s and 60s of course there's no internet and there's not a lot of information for firearms so there were a lot of owners who thought that the stock lug on a Luger was an illegal feature and therefore they would have it removed I mean it's it's even painful to say that much much less think about it but it did happen and again it's still a collectible it's still grandpa's gun that he brought back from the war that somebody surrendered to him or that he that he picked up or or whatever else but the the bottom line is its collectability as a relic itself has been severely compromised and uh you know that's just that's just the way that is uh there are places where you can actually have those lugs restored but I think it's fantastically expensive and I don't know you know I've, I've never embarked on anything that ambitious so I don't know the cost the wait time or anything else it, but it can be done and I'm sure the, the pistol at least the frame of the pistol has to be refinished so uh, it's up to you whether that's worth it or not but it's you know it's it's tragic when you see something like that. So those are things that collectors can do, that would that would uh, compromise or wipe out in some cases the value of a of a gun they brought back from the war. Uh, other things are, uh, of course, sporterizing. You know the, the the single most foolish thing anybody could do, and I would even argue back in the day it wasn't even a very smart thing to do was sporterizing because almost every sporterization job I've seen unless it is top-notch first quality um, really doesn't enhance the gun very much I mean it really doesn't make it more usable or better for hunting it may make it a little bit lighter if they cut the stock and 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 do a few things but other than that it doesn't really help the only exception to that and I, I told you about this a friend of mine a work friend of mine good super good dude he he was telling me he goes yeah my my mother used to work for a gunsmith and when she got married to my father the gunsmith as a wedding present gave her a rifle and i'm i'm sitting there going that's a that's such a cool story so he actually brought it in and showed it to me and and i go this this is a this is an Ackley. This is in 280 Ackley. This is a an Ackley gun. You know, Parker Ackley. What probably at one time the foremost gunsmith in the United States. And he goes, Oh yeah, my my mom was his bookkeeper. <laughs> and I go, Oh my God, you understand what you have here? And I, I told him what, what he has there is, and she never really shot it very much. And it was built on a 
at the time very very common very inexpensive uh, World War II German uh, uh, K-98 action I think it's like BNZ 43 or something you know one of those it's got the three-letter code and the, and the date I forget exactly what it is and it also has the <clears throat> the German style uh, scope and mount so it's a quick detached scope I mean beautifully done beautifully done now obviously worth more because of who did it and because of what it is and because of the quality of work than had it been left as an original surplus World War II Mauser so that's kind of a that's kind of a uh, an exception to the rule of sporterizing but you know again but that's a gun and I told him I said you need to document all that this gun will be very very valuable think not just for yourself but think 30 years from now think 50 years from now this gun could be worth an incredible amount of money especially if its story is preserved with it and people have an understanding a context of where it came from rather than plop it just appears there uh, provenance is very tricky with a firearm uh, because you know the conventional wisdom always is by the gun not the story because there are a lot of stories about about guns and, and nobody seems to have a lot of proof but provenance is is a little bit different that is this has been in my family this is how we got it here's the here's the story as we've uh, <coughs> related and the other side of this coin is if you have any photographs like of you know mom holding the rifle or something that that supports the provenance so you know it's very very important to have all that to keep all that and to document it because down the road it'll be worth lots of money lots of money and and you know it also gives follow-on generations an understanding of what this is and gives them the complete story the story that they would not have otherwise okay here's an easy one is 545 by 39 and 556 NATO interchangeable on any level in any way and the answer is no completely not and I think anybody who listens to this podcast immediately knows that but I was asked that question just yesterday and um, you know it's important ammo interchangeability is a confusing issue because we have we have a, actually a lot of interchangeability, especially with revolvers. You know, you can take 38 short Colt, 38 long Colt, 38 special, and 357 Magnum, and you can fire them successfully in a 357 Magnum pistol. Um, now, what's going to happen is you're going to have the shorter the cartridge, the worse accuracy you probably will achieve. But it, it can all be done because essentially it's the same cartridge that has been lengthened and made more powerful over time so that the the last the last uh, iteration of it the 357 Magnum uh, is the is the longest and most powerful I guess you could extend that out to 357 maximum that actually be you know if I had one of those revolvers that would be like the world's most interesting test taking 38 short Colt long Colt special 357 Magnum and 357 maximum and doing a doing a uh, an accuracy firing that that would be able to actually be entertaining. It wouldn't mean anything. It wouldn't be very valuable data, but it would be interesting. So in in revolvers we have that 44 Russian, 44 Special, 44 um, Magnum, of course. You know all of those can be fired successfully. Uh, so can they? I think. You know then we also have the. Uh, you know, 454 Casol, 460 Smith and Wesson, 45 Colt, 45 Schofield. All of those could be fired in the same, you know, 460 Magnum uh, revolver. Uh, you know, you, you go down the list and, and find these things out. And, and then there are some Wildcats that are in there that, that can probably be fired. Um, you know, these things are very interesting, but. It's always better to use, of course, the proper ammunition in the proper proper gun. In the USPSA monthly magazine, uh, what's it called? 
I guess it's called just USPSA. Um, on the on one of the last pages, there is an interesting article on 38 Super and its rim diameter. 38 Super is a semi-rimmed, and because of the minimum and maximum tolerances for that, um, you, you know the the in actuality the rim uh, can vary quite a bit. So much to the point where there are nine millimeter Largo pistols that will accept certain lots of 38 Super because the rim is small enough that it'll it'll go in there. And of course the Largo is slightly longer than the 38 Super, so you don't really have the headspace issue of it locking up because it's it's hit the uh, it's hit the end of the chamber. So consequently, you know that that can happen. There are also some people who've modified their star pistols to take or astro pistols to take 38 super which is not a smart thing to do in my opinion um, they do that with if they have any brains they they put in a stronger spring at least um, to to help you know absorb some of that recoil you know the, the increased recoil energy of the 38 super and I think star pistols are very well made. They're as, they're as well made as any other 1911 style design. And, uh, you know, you could probably get away with that, but I just don't think it's a very smart thing to do. You know, use the, the gun was designed for an original cartridge. That's the best thing to do. And, and the best example of this are the shaved Webleys. You know, you do the shaved Webley, and if you shoot, you know, plus P, 45 ACP in it, you'll ruin the gun. There's just no two ways about it. If you shoot, you know, moderate or softball style reloads, the, the gun works just fine because those are essentially in the pressure range of the original 455 cartridge. So just because a cartridge will fit in a chamber does not make it safe to do so. And, and I can tell you one of the horror stories I had was and it's been it's been a while since I've been there, and COVID has has kind of interrupted it. But uh, we used to, and we still do, hold Old West revolver shoots out at the James Farm. You know, the the birthplace of the outlaw Jesse James. And on the farm, there's a berm, and and we hold you know people dress in costume, and everybody has a good time. Well, the problem with that was that one guy showed up one day and he was dressed all up like a biker, wasn't dressed like the rest of us. So, you know, he's kind of the you know, and he wasn't a, a bad person but he had a eight a, probably a pieta 18 pieta or uberti i can't remember which 1858 remington cap and ball revolver with one of those conversion cylinders and he was trying to stuff a plus p plus hsm bear load with like a 300 and was it a 325 grain bullet and it wouldn't fit fortunately it wouldn't fit into the gun now the the deal was it was it would actually put it in there and it actually kind of stuck out the front and wouldn't let the the cylinder turn and so his solution was he was starting to take a pen knife and pair the nose of the bullet so that these things would fit now anybody who knows those conversion cylinders are paper thin paper thin and even though they're made out of very good steel there's no steel that's going they're they're designed for very low pressure black powder or smokeless loads that that are used in cowboy shooting they are not designed for a load which is suitable in the upper range of the strength of a ruger blackhawk say or ruger redhawk you know those are these were very powerful loads and they were marked um bear loads and i believe they said plus p plus i mean it would have turned that 1858 Remington into a grenade and you know it, it would have certainly injured people all over the place so I intercepted him and stopped him from doing that but that is another case of you know you have to be careful with the ammunition you select because there are certain guns that cannot take it another another example is the uh, two examples I can think of uh, Spanish Mausers everybody says they're 7 by 57 they're, they're not, and neither are the rolling blocks. They're 7mm Spanish Mauser, which came out before any kind of, you know, 30 years before there was 
any kind of SAMI standards when before the 7x57 was was standardized. So they can have some variances in there. They're normally quite safe with 7mm ammunition, but I would not use this extended range ammo or any kind of any kind of uh, near the top end uh, hand loads for seven millimeter Mauser in these guns. They, you have to use very modest or moderate load data. Just the way it is. Just the way it is. And uh, that's the first one. The next one is the uh, Norwegian Crags in 6.5 by 55. Unless it's the very latest model, and even there's some some argument about that, modern ammunition is not suitable for these. You you have to hand load uh, some modest ammunition for this. The Krag is an older design. It's uh, not going to take the type of pressure that you know these modern loads can dish out. And it's the, you know the older older design meaning it's really only got one locking lug and you know you got to be careful you have to inspect these things you can't expect a hundred year old rifle to be factory new I mean it could have cracked over the years and we have no idea what happened to these rifles before they got into our hands uh, a third example I can think of is the ball D uh, eight millimeter Lebel. I have an 8mm Berthier and it's not, and, and of course for a Labelle or a Berthier to be safe with this Ball D ammunition, which was effectively machine gun ammunition made for the machine guns they had on the Maginot line um, before World War II, the Ball D ammunition um, was was a lot loaded a lot hotter and it had actually a little bit slighter, uh, slightly different bullet so that you know it uh, it needed to be relieved inside the chamber to take this new ammunition and it was only supposed to be used for emergency use anyway you know you're out of rifle ammunition there's some machine gun ammunition you can grab some and shoot it it's not meant for a steady diet for decades of this stuff mine was not marked that it had been relieved they usually put a stamped a D onto the receiver ring but no you don't know that unless you know that and in the pre-internet days, it was very difficult, if not impossible, to know. So I actually grabbed some of this stuff, and only about half of them chambered, which was kind of a sign to me. But a couple of them, you know, half some of them chambered. I fired them. There were no ill effects. But it, again, it was not the thing to do in a 100-year-old. Well, at the time, it was probably 90 years old. Not the thing to do in a 90 in a 90-year-old rifle. It just wasn't. And uh, there's, so you have to research very carefully, and since we're fortunate enough to have the uh, a lot of resources on the internet, you know, think, think before you you actually chamber something in a gun. See if it's see if it's good. See if Turkish surplus ammunition is a good thing for your Hakim, okay? Your semi-automatic Egyptian Hakim. See if Turkish surplus ammo is a good thing for that. It's not. Okay, it's not at all, and you can wreck the rifle by using it. Um, <clears throat> that was designed. That ammunition was basically loaded to kind of pre-World War One standard German standards, and it was a lot hotter. Okay, as kind of the war and things went on, you know, ammunition changes as well as anything else. It 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 evolves too. You know, it goes from round nose to Spitzer and and goes changes bullet weights and you know US ammunition does that too look at 30 out 6 ammunition from 1906 to say 1969 and you'll see quite a bit of change uh, same thing with German ammunition and you know a country like Germany during World War One and probably World War Two um, if you can save two grains of powder in the load that means that's that's an incredible amount of powder you're saving you know you're saving uh, probably four or five percent which means that for the same amount of powder you can you can charge another five or six percent cages and uh, cases and increase your ammunition production without increasing that particular resource so a lot of ammunition kind of becomes a little more sedate in its loading, you know, as as the pressure's on to produce more, 
So ammunition can change, and there's sometimes pre-war ammunition is is a, a lot more powerful, or seemingly a lot more powerful, because it's simply loaded hotter. So anyway, those are all things to keep in mind. But for right now, that's it for this edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is, and if you have any comments, questions, questions or anything else that you'd like to send me you can always send it to kbmakel at aol.com kbmakel at aol.com or you can leave it in the comments section of podbean which is our uh, uh, preferred carrier and where we create this podcast so until next time this is old school guns out